0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and I am so glad to be back. We were unfortunately forced to take a little break there due to my concussion. I don't know if you guys follow us on Instagram and Twitter, but that's where we post any scheduling updates and mishaps, as the case may be, in addition, of course, to any bonus content from our shows. When I posted about the concussion, I got so many lovely messages, and I just wanted to say thank you. For those of you who've never had a concussion, a lot of the time they require you to completely give up any screen time, seriously, like any screen time, until your brain gets back to normal. So obviously that has made it a little difficult to work. Not ideal, but that's what happens when an antique cake plate falls on your head. I wish I was joking. Fortunately, it gave me a lot of time to catch up on reading some very exciting new history books, and I cannot wait to tell you all about them this fall. We are starting today with The Gilded Edge by Dr. Katherine Prendergast. The Gilded Edge is a true story that takes place in Gilded Age, California, and it looks at the love triangle between Nora Mae French, George Sterling, and George's wife, Carrie. By the end of the book, all three are dead in apparent suicides from cyanide poisoning. Nora's death was very suspicious, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today. By way of content warning, this episode does discuss suicide, abortion, and potentially murder. You can make up your own mind about that. So if any of these things bother you, well, you know, go ahead and catch up with us next time instead. That's absolutely fine. Having said this, this is such a fun interview, and Catherine was absolutely fantastic to talk to. The book is unbelievable, and any fans of the Gilded Age, True Crime, or Women's History will love it. I know I did. This is easily one of my favorite books of 2022. Without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Catherine Prendergast. So we are here today with Dr. Katherine Prendergast, author of The Gilded Edge. Welcome, Katherine. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jess. So glad to be here. So The Gilded Edge is an incredible picture of a very specific time and place, focused mainly on the development of Carmel-by-the-Sea following the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. It investigates the fatal love triangle between poet Nora May French and married couple and Gilded Age influencers George and Carrie Sterling. So let's start with Carrie and George. Who were they and what did it mean to be an influencer in 1907? yeah you know i love that that
1: term influencer because and and it i was researching this even before i knew the term and then i was like oh my gosh that's what they are so they were paid particularly george who was a transplant from the east coast he's very yankee his uh his forebearers have you know founded shelter island and you know parts of sag harbor etc so he had come out to san Francisco to work at his uncle's realty business. And um, so they were one of the biggest developers of the East Bay called the Realty Syndicate. And at some point he is approached by the man who has bought most of Carmel-by-Sea property in one shot uh, then, which was about a barren square mile. And looking at um, the records from that time, it was clear to me that the myth that this writer's colony, to which Jack London, Upton St. Clair, Sinclair Lewis, you know, all these people were attached to at one point or another, was actually a for-profit real estate scheme that had only hired writers and bohemians to move there as part of an influencer campaign. Their job was to write about it, and to be written about, and to be seen, and to be having a good time, and get people to move there.
0: And, yeah. and people moved there because it looked like they're having so much fun yeah, it, it, it makes sense and uh and although George was he was involved in the business side of it uh, he had uh well I suppose uh, I don't know if you call them artistic pretensions he was he was sort of an artist uh, himself he was oh, calling- very
1: much so he was uh in fact uh he, his business side was the East Bay company in terms of Carmel he was a hired hand And he was hired because he was known in San Francisco as the king of Bohemia, this poet who could compose sonnets and hang hang out in the coffee, you know, in the Italian restaurants and stuff up there. And so he had this mystique around him, mainly as, um, you know, a Bohemian, despite pulling down like 175 bucks a week as a real estate agent. So
0: So. what did it mean to them to to be a Bohemian in, in San Francisco? You know that's so interesting. They of course were looking back
1: and over to Europe at the Paris communes and and thinking about all you know Baudelaire and all those people over there who had done this a generation before. So they are trying to copy that. In fact, while the Parisians would hang out at a place called La Chat Noir. You remember the posters with the black cat? Oh, you know? yeah. <laughs> right. Famous. Okay, so the San Franciscans had this place called Copa's um, Italian Restaurant that they painted murals all over of literary and artistic wild stuff with quotes. And along the frieze, they had black cats walking around the top. And above that, they had another frieze with their names sort of interspersed with the names of things like Dante and Whistler and like, you know, big names, along with Sterling and Laffler and people you've probably never heard. of, (laughs) So this was very much to them um, uh, a classic through Europe kind of continuation of being a bohemian. But George was said to have um, described the criteria for bohemianism for the new age when he said you have to one be poor and two uh swear yourself to one of the seven arts.
0: Okay. What are those seven arts?
1: Oh uh, yeah, I'm I'm not gonna get all seven. It's like writing, <laughs> singing, drama, music, dance, you know, da-da-da-da-da. So those would be the seven arts. And so yeah. That okay. was uh, so he was nicknamed the king of Bohemia, actually in San Francisco. So if you're you know a San Franciscan attorney who has just bought some speculative real estate in Carmel and want to dress it up as bohemian George Sterling's your guy
0: right he's going to make it look legitimate okay that makes sense he's a really interesting figure so how did he get together with Carrie what is his wife like so Carrie
1: is one of these women who um all all the women in this tale basically were understood even at the time to be new women which was the term for women who what well white women for the first time working in the world and in offices and riding bicycles and doing sports and being seen and being political and publishing and all of that stuff. Suffragettes, Bohemians, free lovists, you know, the wide and Gibson girls, the kind of women with the fashionable updo, you know? The big they big yeah. All yeah. They were all new women. And um so she was one of those people who, unlike George, had uh, fallen into poverty. Her family, when her dad died, went leaving five kids, and her mom had taken in boarders, and so she grows up in the not great side of Oakland. And then, you know, her sister gets her this basically secretarial position with her at the Realty Syndicate, and the sister marries the uncle who owns the business, and Carrie marries George the the very handsome if melancholy uh accountant
0: (laughs) right so this is coming from like a boarding house um and on kind of the wrong side of town this is a huge win for her huge win
1: i mean that cannot be uh, uh that cannot be overstated and she's ready to marry up at that point absolutely she does not want to be doing the boarding house thing anymore so when she marries into this wealthy family with this wealthy business you know and they move to the to the area of the piedmont a very rich area in the hills above oakland you know she hasn't made it um but things go rapidly south <laughs>
0: from there yeah i, I don't know rapidly if downhill like a thing. <laughs> Oh my goodness. It goes so far downhill and you don't think it can go any further. And then it just keeps going. I know. Oh my goodness.
1: I know. Yeah.
0: So how did Nora come into the picture? All right.
1: So Nora was a name I kept running into as this poet who had taken cyanide in the Sterling's house in Carmel in 1907. And she was young in her mid twenties and died and was said to be beautiful and talented. And it was said that after that there was a cyanide cult where all of the Bohemians would carry cyanide on their person, like in a necklace or something. And so they could, you know, if life got boring, just off themselves. And uh, so that that's the myth. And I could only find really one source of that, which was Javier Martinez's wife, an oral interview with her. Um, what I found out was actually the truth behind that death and who Nora was at was as a person, mm-hmm. was much more meaningful than the pretty legend that they had come up with to um, explain why so many people had killed themselves after Cina- uh, after the Sinai death of Norma French with Sinai. Yeah. Gary in 1918 and George finally in 1926.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I found Nora so compelling. And, um, you know, you you have a lot of a lot of records especially about like her earlier relationships like with harry loffler but then by the time she meets george all of that kind of disappears so we still have so many questions
1: yes we do and this is what this was the problem when i was developing the book is well by that time i had found the letter that opens the book that normie french writes harry she's about you know 25 and she's self-administering abortion and writing him about her decision to do that while she is doing it, like while she's cramping, which I was like, whoa, whoa And the yeah. letter itself is her voice was immediately compelling. And for me, that's what gets me interested is the voice. And uh, I started looking at her poetry, and that was compelling. And she was well known poet at the time publishing nationally. So I was like, Why have I not heard of her? Why have I heard of these other folks? But the more and more I went into the archives, it was like uh, the letters that she may have written were altered, disappeared, scratched through, or references to her in letters were scratched through, ripped, whatever. And it was like there was a deliberate attempt to make her vanish in a way that the more I saw it, the more I was determined to figure out what the heck happened as close as I could. Yeah. No, there's
0: so much about that that is suspect. And I mean, I have a lot of questions about that. But before (laughs) we get there, I hope
1: people would, you know, that was my (laughs) hope, that you would read the book and go, this is bonkers.
0: This is completely bonkers. It is. Oh, my goodness. And there are so many surprises. So um, just to back up just a little bit, I want to ask you, because, of course, um, on the podcast, we like to talk about the history of contraception and abortion a lot. It's just kind of one of our pet topics. So um, as you mentioned, of course, the, the book actually opens with Nora's abortion, and cool. uh, abortion is an issue. It keeps coming up for Nora and some of the other women who are mentioned as well. So how common was abortion in the Gilded Age? What what was the reality for, for women? It's common, very common. And uh, the thing
1: is, it's what's not common is to find firsthand accounts of it. So when I found that letter from Nora, I immediately went to my colleague, Leslie Reagan, in the history department, who's written one of the you know, seminal books, hate to use that word, on abortion history called When Abortion Was a Crime. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, do you have many of these firsthand accounts from, you know, the early 20th century? You she didn't know because people it was stigmatized. So people didn't write, talk, whatever about it, you know, um, much like it is now, uh, except for moments of, you know, eruption, like in the 60s when people were like shouting their abortion or more recently. So the problem was then that um, yeah, the thing is it was happening anyway, but uh and it was happening probably in ways that made it harder to police, although they were trying to police it than it is now, simply because the medical technology we have now can say, Oh, you're X number of weeks, right? Back then it was vague. Like, you know, like you could like peer into, it. you know, they didn't have x-rays, they weren't doing this stuff. So unless a woman was visibly pregnant or known to be pregnant, you know, there was a long span of time where they could quietly abort because the, um, there were surgical abortions available it, and Nora had one of those as well. Um, that was her first because she had a rich boyfriend at the time who could hook her up with a doctor, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, there were midwives who would perform it, but the medical establishment was quickly putting them out of business. Um, in a kind of professional move that had little to do with the safety issues. And then there was the option that Nora took the second time, which was to take medications that were available in pharmacies, although due to the Comstock laws. Got to drop a note to Amy Som, whose book The Man Who Hated Women talks about Hugh Comstock and the making of abortion. Um, leaflets and pamphlets passing that through the mail illegal so they were advertised cannily as like bringing on suppressed menstruation
0: Mm -hmm. that's an abortion right and um uh menstrual regulators and widow wilsh's pills and all this and goodness oh a while back i came across this incredible statistic that it um it estimated, and I mean, I don't know how they figured this out, but like towards the end of the 19th century, they thought that as many as one in four pregnancies actually ended in abortion because it was wow. just that common. Yeah, yeah. They,
1: I mean, really common. And as I said, harder to police and mm-hmm. harder to find out about when people had them. So, mm-hmm. but in addition to the numerous abortions in this work, there are also, um, uh, death in pregnancy, uh, uh, nearly stillbirth of Jack London's, you know, daughter Joy, who died three days after being born. Um, there's a miscarriage. There's, you know, a, an inadvertent sterilization. There, you know, the the reproductive lives are writ large throughout the women of this tale. And so, I really wanted to look at that because that was it was the reproductive lives of women. That so ignited the men's anxiety about their legacy and who would ask questions about what they had been up to, you know, so they had to get in there as much as possible and control that.
0: Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, they do seem uh, very concerned with that, with legacy and everything. And of course, uh, I noticed that, well, right away, it stood out to me that Carrie is consciously child free. And that's one of the things that she likes about George. They decide not to have children. Absolutely. She... Was this common? <laughs> Uh, you know,
1: I, I don't, I don't know how common that was. That's a really good question. Um, let's just say she, her incentive was she had been in charge of her siblings and had seen what a large family did. And that's at least enough of a, you know, motivation that Sanger was known to have talked about her mother's large family as a reason why she was pro birth control. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there were ways of trying to control birth. Those weren't 100%. (laughs) So, you know, people got pregnant a lot. So people had abortions a lot. But yeah, um, you could decide to not have children, but that was essentially deciding not to have sex. And um, George sort of suggests that you know, at a certain point, Carrie would rather have not, and that could have been she didn't want to have children, or it could have been she was done with him. <laughs> I
0: don't know, and you couldn't really blame her. And um, I know you not mentioned at all. in the book there, uh, there was the question of if if she had stopped sleeping with him when gonorrhea had started to go around, and you know, of course, she knew that he was having yeah. all these affairs.
1: Yeah, and Jack London's first wife had named gonorrhea in the suit, you know, for divorce. That so that was in the news, and Jack London was George Sterling's best friend. I probably should have mentioned that earlier. So, <laughs> so yeah, that that was one where Carrie was like, "Oh, so all those nights they've been out, like all oh, the whole, you know." Mm-hmm. You- and we know syphilis was rampant at the time and they were having to do facial surgeries for people's noses falling off and you know so there were syphilis clubs it was you were taking your life in your hands if you had a non-faithful spouse
0: oh absolutely and of course the the treatment for syphilis I mean it wasn't even common publicly until about like 1940 Yeah, we're talking pre-antibiotics, so um,
1: yeah, they knew what it was. They couldn't necessarily do much about it. And and George Sterling himself was into one of those whack, uh, a famous quack named Albert Abrams, who said, every man has syphilis, basically. And uh, this is a guy who, you know, even... (laughs) before Elizabeth Holmes said he could diagnose every illness with one drop of blood. Okay. Uh, yeah, and so this was George Sterling's doctor and Upton St. Clair's, and you know, so we're also, you know, in a kind of high mark of quackery. <laughs> so yeah, you can't really, you can't really, if you're a woman and you're seeing, you know, all your guys, uh, your friends coming down with venereal diseases, you draw your own conclusions.
0: Yeah, you are going to got to do the math. I am going to think like, oh, I don't know yeah, about yeah. that.
1: I don't, I don't, I don't think so.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so when George's company asks them to move out to Carmel to try to draw people to it, he and Carrie move and live in relative isolation at first as a way to kind of save their marriage from his affairs. Yeah. But it doesn't go as planned. Do you think the Carmel Colony was like the beginning of the end for Carrie and George? Oh, oh, undoubtedly. But it it would have ended
1: eventually, but not as uncomfortably for Carrie. Um, just to be clear, George's company in the East Bay was the Realty Syndicate. They didn't own Carmel. That was a friend of his, named oh, Frank Powers, who probably met through the Bohemian Club. And so um, they were all, you know, real estate speculators. They all knew each other, right? They all, you know, worked together. At one point, I think Frank Powers had helped the Realty Syndicate with a suit. So this wasn't like, I mean, it's people who drink with in the the gentleman's club. So Frank Powers is like, okay, I'm having trouble selling lots on this area of land. George at this point has befriended Ambrose Bierce, famous great American novelist, who has told George that he's like the next Keats basically. And George is tired of being uh, a real estate person. And so he tells Carrie that like, I'll reform if we just move to Carmel, we won't have, you know, he pulls a geographical, how many marriages do this? Like, we'll take all our problems, but we'll move to someplace different. And that'll fix everything. And of course it doesn't. He's just as, you know, philandering and drunk and, you know, shiftless and Carmel as he had been. It's just different women. Yeah but you know with less of a paycheck so for for her that you know eventually winds up being hard times because he's like I'll just shoot a bunch of snipe and you know get abalone and that's living off the land and you know she's like ah, she's not glamorizing poverty she's
0: lived it unlike he did yeah and uh they they live in a tent as their house is being built and she's cooking yeah over the fire Yes,
1: yes. And this was not uncommon because there was one hotel in Carmel at the time called the Pine Inn, which Frank Powers, uh, the head of the Carmel Development Company, had put on logs and moved close to the beach. You can go there and stay there today. It's still. Oh. Well. So they had all these people coming in to look at lots and visit the place, but they ran out of rooms. So they would put up subsidiary tents next to the inn and give people like a burner and a table and chairs. And like, that's how you would come to Carmel to look at property. I wonder why it
0: didn't sell. (laughs) I can't imagine. Oh, my goodness. And of course,
1: the (laughs) more comfortable thing was, you know, once George and Carrie, you know, made their big house they would have their friends down and any interested parties and basically run them through a fun timeshare weekend you know oh we're going on a 17 mile drive which is beautiful and then we'll go to the beach and we'll we'll dig for mussels, and then we'll you know popcorn by the fire and by that time you know everybody's like sold this is great you know or a lot of people and uh so the powers the size words of mouth is better
0: Right. And then increasingly, of course, you know, people would come and they'd have this fun timeshare weekend, you know, they they'd do the whole spiel for everybody, you know, and Carrie be the hostess and cook. But people must have picked up on the tensions between Carrie and George because they were not happy. No. And their job was to be written about and to be happy,
1: to mm-hmm. actually be happy. And so there was a lot of oneth on Carrie, particularly to paste a smile on her face, even to her closest friends, and say yeah it's paradise you know and she can't sustain it nor can he sustain the you know mounting gossip about his affairs um which are barely concealed
0: right so oh goodness um so how did his affair start with nora how did all that come together
1: well this is the problem right so george is married um nora at this point has broken up with George's other best friend, Harry Laffler. They finally, you know, called it quits. It's after the earthquake, everything's a mess. George goes back to the Realty Syndicate to do work because everything's a mess and he doesn't have money. So he's gotta go back to the day job from Carmel. At the same time, Nora May French is working in the telephone exchange. Remarkably, there are zero letters between Nora May French and George. There are also zero letters between Carrie and George. And zero letters between George and another woman he has an affair with at the end. What are the odds? The odds are 0% that these letters exist. So I did a lot of like comparing calendars, looking where they were together, noting, you know, how he in a diary mentioned her name, noting that they were in the same place when she wrote this poem and da 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 da, and all of this kind of people basically sort of accepted they had an affair. Although her sister always denied that it was consummated, Nora tended to lie to her sister because her sister was very pragmatic and practical and was tired of Nora getting knocked up with married men and uh, having affairs, breaking up. She was, I mean, really talented, but also ruthless when it came to, if she wanted a guy, she got him. So yeah, eventually her closest Relationship, her sister sort of peeled off and said, I can't take it anymore and left San Francisco. And so Nora's now without a house, because she'd been living in one that Harry Laffler had built, without her sister, and seemingly spending a lot more time with George, and miraculously moves in with the Sterlings, which when you have a single woman moving in with a married couple in that age, it is going to raise eyebrows no matter what. So much so that that entire scenario was the one Edith Wharton in the House of Mirth in her novel chose as the one that finally sees her heroine, Lily Bart, you know, out of society. You can't, that, that's an incredible risk to take um, for both the Sterlings. And I had to really think about why they accepted it.
0: Yeah, that that is the question. You know, uh, Carrie let Nora live there, even mm-hmm. though she's clearly threatened by by all these women who may or may not have been having affairs with George, right? Um, and she, you mentioned she liked to kind of play the big sister and care for for younger women, but she could be, you know, quite judgmental and kind of mean spirited at times, right? You you have I have this wonderful quote: she needed someone around her whose life was such a disaster; her own would look wonderful by comparison. Do you think yes. that's why she let Nora stay?
1: I mean, I. she always seemed to, there was a pattern where she always had a younger woman around as a close companion, and that George always wrestled with this. They had one named Kate Partington um, up in the Piedmont after Kate Partington's uh, husband died, their mutual friend, and she was living with them. And George Rice Ambrose, she's getting far too attractive. I need her to move out. I just, <laughs> you know, like, He's like, you know, very blunt with his male friends about this. And um, yeah, so she seems to she has two older sisters who are constantly criticizing her an incredibly critical mother, who, you know, even criticizes her after she's dead. It's, it's, she's just, you know, it's just gives her a certain amount of oomph to have a,
0: a, a girl there who seems to need some direction. Oh yeah. And, and she can give the direction because her life is so happy. (laughs) She's married.
1: Yes. She's married up. She's done the right thing. Right. Mm -hmm. So never mind. you know, look behind the curtain, um, on the face of it, she's doing right. So yeah, that's her constant thing is, and also there's maybe a little frisson. I don't know, but one of the readers suggested, you know, she did stop having sex with George. Did she really like men all that much?
0: That's I wondered a- that too I did See, I know
1: other people are like, yeah one of my girlfriends when reading like it in development was like was she gay and I was like not that she would have ever acknowledged or dealt with it but there's pictures of her wearing men's suits and you know where she looks quite confident and natural <laughs> so who knows
0: yeah and then uh the, you know right before Nora dies of course like there there's this affectionate scene where the three of them are kind of hugging each other and and you do wonder and then of course she shared a room with Nora
1: well yeah it's 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 really unclear the- the sleeping arrangements where Nora was out in the tent until it started to get cold, and Nora was supposed to be a temporary visitor, and I'll let you read the book to find out why, mm-hmm. and this is part of why they accepted her. She was supposed to be moving on, so this was supposed to be temporary, but at the point where George is building her an out kitchen, she's clearly staying, okay the right. winter, and um it's getting cold, even in Carmel in the winter, and so you know, in the diary that the Sterling's kept, George is describing all the time, the three of them sat together by the fire, reading, going on hikes, doing this, doing that. And then Carrie would take over while George was out of town, up back at the realty syndicate, making money and just like, you know, you know, oh, Nora and I did this, Nora, I I mean, her loneliness is relieved um, because she's very lonely, whether George is around or not.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, um, there's also this constant tension that you just can't get away from in the book, just between the wives and the mistresses. It's always just wives versus mistresses. Most of it seems to come from Carrie. So... She's horrified when Jack London marries his lover, Charmian, and he she discovers that George sees no difference between quote wives and whores, right? Right. So she thinks of Charmian as a woman who validated adultery, like adultery is fine as long as no one gets rewarded for it. right? So she seems to believe that it's women's fault that George is unfaithful. It's not It's not that George is a sex addict. It's just that these women are too pretty. Was it easier for Carrie to blame other women than to accept that George was unhappy and not a very good person?
1: Look, I mean, I think Carrie's done the common thing of uh, having the addiction to potential. Like, if only mm. I do X, Y, or Z, I can turn this man around and make him right. Um, and so, I mean, she blames Jack, too. But what Charmian did, what she blamed Charmian for, um, which is clear that it happened and people, you know, kind of dance around this, but um, Charmian was pretending to be friends with Jack's first wife all during it. So as to make the divorce less like, you know, well, it was fractious, but you know what I mean? To, to kind of like ease in, you know, Jack's divorce and not alarm Beth so much she would not do it and things like that. So, so Carrie knew that and uh she wasn't wrong and but her thing was like okay i don't want either of these people at carmel ever now george his whole goal in life is to get jack london now the number one novelist in america if not the world you know with call of the wild to buy in carmel like this would anchor the colony like this would do it right and all of this blows up exactly at the wrong time for that plan and jack goes sorry i'm buying in sonoma bye and uh clearly a big part of that is um the rift between charmian and carrie and carrie wants george to denounce uh charmian and jack and he refuses to do it and eventually she has to fold and just, you know, what is she gonna do? Their more and more their financial well being depends upon their ability to attract writers. And she's so she's not allowed to call the shots of who visits anymore.
0: Right, right. She eventually house. has to to accept Charmin and kind of pretend like, Oh, I was I was gonna invite you eventually.
1: Yeah, she's eventually running a boarding house, essentially. it,
0: And that
1: was the one thing George had promised at that point. It's like, okay, Jack can visit, she said, but Charmian never. And eventually, you know, another year or so, there's Charmian. So there she is. They start to have a rapprochement, but it is it doesn't last long.
0: Right. And then uh, Nora's death happens so suddenly. It really comes as as, as a surprise. Now, it was accepted as suicide, but the circumstances were very suspicious. Can you walk us through what happened? (laughs) No, I can't.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I decided eventually that wasn't going to be my job because after I had, you know, heard about the suicide when I you know, went to Carmel into the archives and then I got into the newspapers and I read the various accounts of what had happened, I was like, none of this makes a lick of sense. None, None of, of it, and you've read it, and so you know, and so, so my, you know, um my job, I decided was to really, I didn't want to deprive the reader of the, of the kind of excitement and joy I felt of just running through this mystery, like like you would binge watch a Netflix thing, you know, <laughs> it's like what happens next, what happens next, and you're putting the pieces together, and like it's not until the last episode that they all kind of come together. um mm-hmm and i i would say you know my greatest hope after this was not that people would know exactly what happened but they would understand that whatever happened it should have been investigated more than it was and the reasons it was not investigated had everything to do with money and power of the people involved and um and not Norma French her life became valueless basically in this and uh she she had value she had immense value so that was to me the rough spot but i also wanted people to have knocked down drag out fights at book clubs <laughs> like <laughs> because my i will tell you i will not tell you which thought which but uh my agent and my editor had two opposed readings of whatever happened to Norma French that night like really convinced, yeah yeah and these are the two people who know the book best next to me right so i
0: was just like wow i'll just sit here and drink my tea and just yeah you can kind of make up your own mind but there are uh some red flags (laughs) to put it lightly there are some uh very very suspicious circumstances yeah Um, of course everyone everyone thought that uh that she died by suicide and uh well there's a big question mark over that um but Afterwards, everyone seemed to believe it to the point that there were a string of of suicides that were yeah. seemingly inspired by Nora. Uh, what happened there?
1: So the press gets involved, and she is very beautiful. And there's a photo of her by Arnold Gentha, who's you know at this time famous for having photographed most of Chinatown uh, when it was and San Francisco under the earthquake. Most of the photos you see of that he took. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this and she her poetry is known she has exceeded the boundaries of this san francisco group and is publishing more broadly and um and she's good and uh so people have been reading her poetry and if you think about it this is before movies became the entertainment so you know the image And it really is an image of this beautiful young woman who kills herself from, you know, whatever, disappointed love or, you know, tiredness of life. The You know, there were wall-to-wall articles, coast-to-coast about it, featuring snippets of her poems and uh, pictures of her and descriptions of her and the, you know, Carmel landscape, you know, it's all very compelling. And uh, then people start showing up dead with her poetry in their pockets
0: it's wild and then of course uh, a lot of their friends later died under very mysterious circumstances i didn't know what to make of that
1: yeah so they do (laughs) (laughs) and so what was made of it is oh it must have been a suicide cult but that's not what it was no none of these were (laughs) pre-planned i don't think
0: i mean they couldn't have been i you know it's not for well, very
1: long i mean not you know not coordinated, pre-coordinated you know individually maybe pre-planned but coordinated no
0: right the um the passage about the uh the man who who leaned his head out the window and was suddenly decapitated in the car i read that to my husband he said on purpose <laughs> like, like we no i don't know? think so
1: and <laughs> and um uh, his granddaughter disputes that he was decapitated, but that's that's in the news report was that he was decapitated. And you got to figure the news was sort of upping the sensational value of all of these deaths.
0: Yeah, very, very possibly. So yeah. one thing that that really stuck with me, and you mentioned it haunted you in the book as well. Um, after Nora died, Carrie said this this bizarre thing. She said she played the game. She died looking so beautiful. I know, what do very... you think she meant by that?
1: Well, she just thought that Nora was um, juggling all these men trying to get um, herself out of a, you know her impoverished situation. This woman is 26. She has no money. She's now a spinster, basically. And uh, Nora was watching, well, you know, I, I'm sorry, Carrie was watching Nora go horseback riding with Jimmy Hopper, who's one of the Carmel set and uh, entertaining you know an ex-boyfriend earlier and so she's seeing this is what she thinks of as woman's power really is limited to being able to play the game um i i'm not going to sit here from the vantage point of my century and say she's wrong either like the women i mean we all like to describe agency you know in retrospect But the fact is, their choices were extraordinarily limited. Mm -hmm. And because of that, these women were put on a collision course with one another. If there was tension between the mistresses and the wives, it was because there were mistresses and wives (laughs) to begin with. So um, yeah, so the men kind of like get to skate, you know, they could get divorced with the social ramifications of that hanging over their lives, like it did, you know, for the women in the book. They could they could be single, they could do anything as be gay, basically. So there was a lot of things they could do and not lose social stature. But for the women, it was a very high-risk game. And mm-hmm. so that's how Gary saw it.
0: Right. And uh, and as you point out, these these men were having all kinds of affairs and doing all kinds of things without repercussions. But for the women, this stuff is Literally, life and death. Absolutely, oh, life and death. Childbirth is life and death. It still is, and we'd like to pretend it isn't. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It still definitely is. How how did society enable this? You know, you you mentioned that everything was kind of it was kind of wives versus mistresses on a kind of grand scale.
1: Well, um, so the new woman, it's interesting, I remarked sort of at the beginning that as a historian, all these women are new women, like Charmian and Carrie and Nora and Mary Austin, all of them, admirable in their own way, breaking boundaries and doing stuff. But the thing is, and it was much discussed at the time, the new woman, this is not something historians made up. But I, I began to realize as I read more and more, there was never a new man. It was an assumption that that if women seized the public sphere and these rights, that the men would have to evolve. Um, We're finding over and over to our peril that that never, in fact, happens, that men uh, don't. And then women, there's backlash, and women are enjoined to remake themselves over over and over and over and over and over again. So, when are they not new is to the question that I have so that 's how society absolutely enables it, and at this point in time, women are sort of needed during the girl, Gilded Age because the money's there well, once we hit 1907, we 're going to hit a series of bad depressions leading up to the big one, and uh, particularly with World War I, you know patriarchy comes back into the fore, and uh, the, they kind of push the women back in now women still pursue you know, and they get the vote, et etc but there's always the pushback. So that's that's what we're going into. So Nora is uh, so unlike the others in that she refuses to marry despite several, several offers that would have seen her comfortably in the position Carrie is in, maybe even better off, who knows, you know? But each time she realizes she would have to conform herself to this notion of an ideal do- domestic woman, mm-hmm. you know, pinned down and she cannot do it. She is the one true bohemian in the book and she cannot make herself do it no matter the cost she has to pay.
0: Right. It it sounds like she wasn't playing the same game that Carrie was playing. She absolutely wasn't. No, there there was no game. She was
1: just, you know.
0: She was sexually incontinent, that's for sure. She was enjoying herself, but she wasn't playing a game. Wow. So after she passes away, I mean, it's it's very, very clear that Carrie and George have an extremely dysfunctional relationship. And it just goes from bad to worse, right? He doesn't yeah. appreciate it. they her- remind you of any people you know? Like, I mean, I think we all know these relationships where you're just like, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I think I've I've th- I've met a couple of carries in Georges I have, yeah. So uh, it's not gonna end well. <laughs> it's not, you know, and you're just like waiting and kind of holding your breath. Trying <gasps> to be a good
1: friend, but just being like,
0: dude. Like I support you, but is this healthy? Yeah. So he, he even calls her at one point his billion ton wife anchor, which yes, isn't yes. exactly flattering, right?
1: Oh, no. It's his whole, you know, gestalt about her to the world is, you know, well, she keeps me steady, but, you know, aren't wives always just the nag and the this and the that. And he's just trying to hide his affairs from her more and more as he realizes that in Carmel's a little town. Mm-hmm. And other women in town are not having any of it. And so he writes even a poem called The Cats of Carmel satirizing, you know, these busybodies who are not creative enough and, you know, just, you know, ruining his good time.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> but sure the that men never ruin his fault. good time. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So of it's course bro it, code.
1: Yeah. Big bro code going on the whole time. <laughs>
0: And definitely pro code oh my goodness um and of course that's who he tells all these things to we get so many of these kind of confessions and these observations about women from his letters to his guy friends
1: yeah yeah, yeah. and they're very candid and so you mm-hmm. really get to see you know a little bit behind the frat boy mystique um yeah. and so there are some that are so bitter uh and about women it's gross. And and towards the end of his life, uh, George Sterling's best friend is H.L. Mencken, who's the kingpin of, you know, 1920s literature, who finds Fitzgerald, who's, you know, like, edits the smart set. And that guy is like, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more racist, misogynistic guy. And every time people quote H.L. Mencken, because God knows he's clever, I'm just like, just don't.
0: <laughs> like, really. This is not something you want Parker.
1: to be Go somewhere else
0: with yeah, yeah
1: quit but you know they're both men trying to drink their way through prohibition and mm-hmm. screw their way through prohibition and you know this is death it's after Carrie's death and their correspondence is like ugh, it's something else
0: oh my goodness yeah it, it is and all these these bits from the letters are, are fascinating but you you don't come out of this liking anybody um certainly not the men and that was
1: a tr- that was that is a problem for me when I was writing it and remains a problem in terms of, believe it or not, George Sterling has fanboys. uh, If you go into Amazon reviews, you'll read the fanboys and how upset they are with me that I am not credited George with all the help he gave Nora on her poetry oh, and that I had not acknowledged his genius as a poet <laughs> like i mean his his book Wine of Wizardry was being uh panned at the time like famously epically scandalously called crap so (laughs) i mean i i i'm so amused that you know in 2022 there's this die hard bunch of george fans but early on i realized you know i had tried believe me i spent a year trying to make these guys more redeeming than they actually were and i just couldn't i i really could not um there's one jimmy hopper who comes closest you know he's actually not so bad but Uh, He lives a long life and has opportunities to redeem himself and won by becoming a war hero at at points and a journalist in World War One. But um, yeah, other than that, it's it's not good. So
0: it's not good. Yeah,
1: I finally relieved myself of that. But then people are like, well, you've really put your thumb on the scale for the women. And I'm like, just on the other side where the thumb wasn't.
0: Yeah. Another thumb. I mean you can't help what the sources say i mean it's it's coming straight from the horse's mouth isn't it yeah <laughs> and as far as like you know yeah there
1: there is the sources and and you can draw your own conclusion from it and you may disagree with my conclusions but it is what it is um so this is just the the problem with history is the people who write it often um are you know londonologists or hemingwayologists or you know Ripperologists are people who are fascinated with the men of the period and write from that necessarily their perspective and God knows there's sixty six thousand documents of Jack London in the Huntington Library. Um, you could write a fifth biography of Jack London if you so chose, but eventually I asked myself, uh why would anyone do that at this point what What new would we learn really from
0: right?" That? And then, you know, this- Oh, so he's of, a side
1: character in my book. He's there, but he's a side character.
0: Right, yeah, he's he's sort of you know, a famous cameo. There, there are a lot of famous cameos. <laughs> and lots that, of famous cameos. Yeah. Lots of famous cameos. And then instead of, uh, you know, as you say, kind of writing like a fifth biography of Jack London, you know, you're, you're giving these these voices back to these women who were, you know, I mean, really kind of ignored unless they were being blamed for something. You know, of course, you you mentioned yeah. that, you know, even after Nora's death, people were blaming her for George's state of mind you know he he was he 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 loved her and he was being haunted by her and if only that poor dead woman could let him go like what (laughs) I know
1: it is ridiculous but that was that was Ambrose Bierce's take like I'll Mm -hmm. work this woman poison out of you you know like get this Dulcinea which is like Don Quixote's young infatuation Alive or dead, Dulcinea is out of your mind, you know, really referring to Nora. And and George is is so depressed. And he writes beers, he's like, I just can't do anything when I'm not in love, you know, and I he's 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 devastated after she dies and cannot hide it, however inconvenient that is, both for the marriage uh and Carmel, uh he's, he ceases to do his job as effectively as he's supposed to, recruiting and for the whole sort of male gestalt of just kind of like tripping you know lightly through life
0: yeah so he he goes on afterwards and he continues to have affairs all different kinds of affairs um, <laughs> right so all kinds of things but you know he never forgets nora and it seems it really seems like she was different she was yeah for him absolutely different yeah so <laughs> yeah what happened to carrie and george After she died, you mentioned that everything started to kind of go downhill.
1: Yeah, so they kind of get their story straight about what happened and why. And, um, you know, anyone who asks them, they tell them basically the same story, which was interesting to me as a, you know, going through the archival record, I was like... Wow, there's some remarkable similarity, <laughs> like kind of like when you're interviewing all the witnesses and they say the same thing, they're like, "Wow, that's the same in fact, words as that other anyway. So they do that. And then um they have to shoot down all kinds of rumors. I won't get into what for the next year and a half that circulate around Nora because however much they want to bury it there's um there's shit stirs and gossips both in the women and the male community men like to think they're not gossips but there's a famous friend who's just like oh and then she went to live with the Sterlings. I mean, this kind of thing in New York and keeping the story alive and alive so it just freaking won't die. And then people start dying and the papers are like, Nora's back, you know, this phantasm. fantastic. So, yeah, what happens to Carrie? You know, there's only so much room in the book and um, she's desperately trying to study the ship until she can't any longer. But in the immediate aftermath, it's one letter that didn't make it in that I regret. And that's by Bierce's uh, niece, Laura Bierce, who uh, she was good friends with. And they, the the niece and nephew of Ambrose Bierce go camping with her in August. And Laura writes, you know, Carrie's mutual friend said she was so mean. She was so not herself. I didn't even like her anymore. Like, she's obviously going through some weird mood thing as well. Like, this has left immediate devastation but then they kind of click back into you know the affairs and drinking and you know trying to cope pattern and um it is really another decade or more before the emotional toll finally builds up to the point where it
0: breaks them completely yeah so they uh they did ultimately get divorced and uh clearly they didn't really like each other so do you think if they would have split up sooner things have got would have gone differently for Nora?
1: No, no, it would have had nothing to do with it. She would have found, I mean, much as George was in love with her, she would have found, you know, like I mean, it was a placeholder, you know, affair. It was just like basket weaving, you know, (laughs) I mean, almost a hobby. And uh, yeah, no, it would have meant she was not going to marry anyone. And she had George's number. Of course she did. And, you know so you know she always knew kind of basically the limitations of the people she got involved with um but she her pattern would be she would do get into it either because of an infatuation or obviously forbidden love was a large part of it because each guy was married laughed was married her boyfriend before that was married and like you know after she turned on her first engagement to someone eligible it's almost like she never fell in love with a single guy again And so she's, you know, she's in it for the bohemian lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Um, But her own consequences come up and, you know, she's not able, you know, once you're getting older as a woman, you know it. And her poetry towards the end of her life, you know, says, you know, basically that I feel like all the earth is decaying and, you know, it's almost like, you know, love decays, the earth decays, and she has a sense, sitting there in Carmel, watching the Carmel River dry up, and she's very like, she spends a lot of time in nature, that this whole beauty of the land that she has in front of her is going to decay as well. And so she's a harbinger of really the ultimate, you know, fall of the Carmel set, and ecologically, what happens to California.
0: And she's right. And uh, and of course, you know, seeing George and Carrie kind of every day doesn't it wouldn't make her want to get married. You know, if anything, it would just kind of uh, reassure her that she was right to avoid it. She just knows it's not for her. Yeah.
1: She knows it's not for her. And, and, you know, she's happy for her sister when she finds someone, but it's it's not for her. And at a certain point early on, she knows who she is. And uh, come what may, she's going to live her truth.
0: Yeah, and then uh, of course after the divorce, things seem to be going better for Carrie for a while, um, mm-hmm. but then she ultimately dies by suicide as well. Um, now there is a rumor in there that I found really chilling, and I was wondering if oh, there's yes. any truth to it. Just okay, the, go ahead. the idea that that she had died by drinking the last of the cyanide from Nora's bottle, like yes. she oh, kept God. it.
1: I I doubt it. I doubt it. I mean, it, cyanide was. Wicked common. Okay, you could just you could go to your just like you could get the aborta fashions. Mm -hmm. You could get arsenic and cyanide at the time. Like either you could say I want to kill some rats, or you could say I want to polish some jewelry. Or there's many uses that these chemicals had and still have. You know, there's industrial uses for cyanide and arsenic today. So um, that that wouldn't have been hard to find. Um, She uh, she dies um in 1918 which is also 11 years
0: (laughs) i mean she'd be hanging on to it for a long time
1: yeah i doubt it i doubt it again that was one source and um i I, whenever there's one source and i can't corroborate it i mean quietly behind the scenes i'm very much of a hard-nosed researcher and uh so just like the cyanide cult, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So there has to be some corroboration that looks likely, and in her case I could find none.
0: Yeah, and there's so much uh, kind of poetic license around all this stuff too. There's a lot, and you know, um,
1: not like even in a history like this you don't take some to set the scene and to get inside their heads because you've read so many letters at this point, you know exactly how they would feel about what's going on in front of them. Right. But but yeah, there's um, in terms of the poetic license that was taken with the newspapers and the people who lived in Carmel, it was all in the service of glamorizing Carmel, their own legacies. It was never in the service of really making Norma French, you know, Uh, someone people would read a hundred years later.
0: Right and even when she passed away when the the way that they wrote about her in the papers read like an advertisement for Carmel.
1: Absolutely absolutely And
0: and then George Sterling and Harry Laffler against
1: her family's wishes edited a book of her poetry and left out happy ones you know so it, it's and, and included some she never published and with reason would not have wanted published um so yeah they did what they wanted they used her alive they used her dead
0: that's so sad i mean she just deserves better she's such an interesting character well i was hoping to have given her better <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely and i think you really did um so before we close out i've got two more questions kind of vaguely sure. I'm I'm thinking about George too. He's he's such an interesting guy and you kind of feel for him but at the same time he's really his own worst enemy so you can't be too sympathetic you know um so he he feels very deeply as it pertains to himself but he seems completely oblivious to the feelings of carrie nora and the other Mm -hmm. women that he just like ghosts along the way um Mm -hmm. so nora clearly haunted him well i mean maybe literally haunted him until his death but do you think he ever regretted what happened with carrie and all of the other women
1: well, if you read his um letters after she died, he has immense regrets. Like, oh, if I had only known how miserable she was, like, dude, she was telling you the whole time. <laughs> so I mean, they're they're so um so self-centered, it's it's startling. But um I think what you have in the book is a case of what Kate Mann called uh so deathlessly empathy where the Uh men feel sympathy for other men and for men's troubles and so in the end you know he he feels like yeah some a lot of guilt Mm -hmm. right but it never led him to lead any kind of a different life in so far as women were concerned at all um and so oh yeah I should have paid more attention to my mother and oh I should have been a better this I should have been a better that I do feel think he has a moment of remorse and. Um, responsibility, like a, a minor insight of responsibility into what he wrought by playing all these women off against each other towards the end i'm making that argument based on the fragments of poetry that he he leaves before he offs himself. Um, and they're very, you know, that's what he leaves out that people can see there's a pile of ashes on the desk he clearly burned a lot of stuff. So the fact is, we'll never know 100% what he felt, you know, or any of these people. But that's the fun part.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, and of course, as you <laughs> mentioned, George, uh, he, he tragically also died by suicide. And again, it was cyanide. Yes. And uh
1: H. L. Mencken lately later said it was probably a good thing. He was impotent and he you know he couldn't drink anymore without getting sick. So,
0: so much more important
1: floods. thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say this for George. I do think he had a very Catholic. This is the weird thing about him for being a Yankee. His dad converted to Catholicism. Um, and he went to Catholic school before failing out because he's useless. Um, but he he had a sense of uh, taking care of children and whenever his friends with children needed money he gave it like even when he didn't have it uh and you know to other male poets who were struggling so there was that side of him always the empathy very much you know we have to keep the children going etc cetera, etc cetera. I think he had that
0: but mm-hmm. that's where it ended interesting so what is Georgia's legacy what happened with Bohemian Grove and all of that afterwards well, Bohemian
1: Um Club is still very much functioning as a gentleman's club in um San Francisco. I couldn't get into it. Um Bohemian Grove is a powerhouse. Richard Nixon was a member. I mean, still like the elite are members of these clubs and uh go do these campouts, these weird campouts, and you can read all kinds of secondary literature about that if you want. I where men dress in drag and do, you know, these theatrics while burning statuary or whatever it's crazy and this is their sort of bonding and this is supposed to elevate them above just shrill capitalists right so um and give them depth i guess so so that legacy goes on and as i said you know there's people in california who will tell you that george sterling was misunderstood and he's a great poet and he's got that park named after him san francisco um, I eventually stopped asking myself what were the legacies of the George Sterling's world and asking, what are the legacies of the Nora Mae French's world? Where's her bench? Where's her park? Where's her, you know, her fan club? It, 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 it's amazing how men get these memorials of stone and women, you know, get thrown into miscellaneous archives of their abusive ex-boyfriends.
0: It's just such a tragedy, but you know you've yeah. done such a wonderful job of of bringing this back to life you know you I can't imagine how much work it must have taken to to find seven years
1: yeah it was a long time <laughs> i I don't write quickly and uh so it's it's very it it takes it's laborious it's laborious, but once I get it down, then I know what i want to write then it's it's better I hope the next one goes more quickly. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Well, I'm sure it will. That's wonderful. And that's perfect. So uh, my last question is, of course, what's next for you? Where can we find you? Uh, Yeah, so
1: um, I am wrapping up my last year of teaching at University of Illinois at Urbana, where I've been on faculty since 1997, and to devote myself more to writing and uh, retirement and, you know. Uh, so the next book um, is looking at Jewish women labor activists of the early 20th century, same period, different coast, um, very different kind of class circumstance. And again, it's going to be a long range project because I have to learn Yiddish or I have been learning Yiddish because some of the major texts from the movement are in Yiddish. Yiddish is a language of socialism of um, the 20th, early 20th century you know, no no doubt about it. And so I was like, well, I mean, just like I had that moment in the archives of like, well, this is a very well-trod path and I don't wanna trot it again. Um, I look at all the English resources from the period and I look and see all these tons of Yiddish resources that few people have done things with. And I was like, I'm going in. So that's what I'm doing.
0: That sounds fantastic. I can't wait to read it. You'll have to let us know what you it have is. To that sounds great. Well, my goodness, good luck with all that. That's thank, you. thank you. Thank you for your great
1: questions.
0: Thank you so much for being here today. We really cannot thank you enough. The book is The Gilded Edge, and it was such a fantastic read. And it is out in paperback on October 12th, October 12th. Yes.